Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Kevin Schmiesing, Research Fellow at the Acton Institute, giving a talk entitled, Marching in Opposite Directions, Religious Liberty in the American Past and Present. This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. My title I take from an observation from Alexis de Tocqueville, a guy whose name has surfaced already once or twice. Upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more I perceived the great political consequences resulting from this new state of things. In France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions. But in America, I found they were intimately united and that they reigned in common over the same country. One way of looking at the history of Catholicism in the United States is as a struggle between those who view the Catholic faith as compatible with the American experiment and those who do not. And that line of demarcation, by the way, runs within the Catholic world as well. The contemporary debate about religious freedom, in my estimation, is a continuation of this struggle. The intensity of the current debate, I think, has much to do with the fact that Americans hold increasingly dissimilar views about a concept at the heart of American politics and culture, the concept of freedom. Given that freedom is considered to be a good for virtually all Americans, I think the opposing view is so rare as to be insignificant, where freedom and religion are seen to be marching in the same direction, to borrow Tocqueville's metaphor, religion is viewed as a positive force in society. Where they are, where they are seen to be opposed, religion is thought to be inimical to human well-being. International religious liberty expert Thomas Farr identified the same problem in a 2012 address when he observed that at root, the increasing incidence of discrimination and persecution related to religion derives from a dangerous intellectual error. The growing conviction that religious freedom is not only unnecessary to individual and social flourishing, but that it is in fact a danger to it. The purpose of this paper is twofold, to illustrate in an admittedly selective and episodic fashion how the relationship between Catholicism and freedom has been understood in the American past, and to suggest, following from this historical account, that encouraging a sanguine view of this relationship could be instrumental in preserving the freedom of religious belief and practice that this country has afforded. Now, I'll be focusing on the way Americans have understood the relationship between freedom and religion rather than on the way they have understood freedom itself. But I want to stipulate at the outset that the definitional question is vitally important. Abraham Lincoln said, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not mean the same thing. Well, the situation has only gotten worse since the 1860s. The traditional Catholic view of freedom is not autonomy, but the capacity to choose the good, a capacity that comes ultimately from relationship with Christ, who said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is naturally a crucial distinction with manifold implications. Avery Dulles wrote, whether liberty consists in doing what one likes or in doing what one ought makes an overriding difference in practice. A great rift exists between those who absolutize freedom and those who hold that true freedom can only be freedom in the truth. Which is the predominant view in the United States today? Well, there's no simple answer, but I suspect that most observers 
would agree that the concept of freedom grounded in truth is a minority position. It's certainly not entirely foreign to the American experience. The notion of ordered liberty is prominent within American thought from the colonial period on, but it would be a difficult burden to prove that such remains the dominant view among Americans today, as opposed to freedom as personal autonomy. So we understand that we're dealing with shifting notions of freedom, that the picture is complicated, that Americans have divergent, sometimes radically divergent ideas about what freedom is. Yet, even as the concept of freedom has been unstable, there are detectable patterns and tendencies with respect to the relation between freedom and religion. And that's what I'm going to explore. <clears throat> Through the colonial period, the majority of British colonists perceived a sharp distinction between Protestantism and Catholicism on the matter of liberty. For many, in fact, their understanding of freedom and religion was built on a contrast between the two Christian persuasions. Protestantism was about liberty, freedom from the tyranny of rule by pope and king. The story of oppression and liberation in Europe was the story of gradual emancipation from the dominance of priests. This was a key aspect of the narrative of Puritan New England. America was the shining city on a hill, not least because it was free of the dominion of the Catholic Church. But there was another view incubating on American soil, the view of Catholics such as John Carroll and Charles Carroll, who believed that their faith might benefit from the environment of American freedom. Now they were sons of the Maryland colony, where an early experiment in religious liberty had foundered on the rocks of sectarian conflict. So they understood perfectly well the anti-Catholic bias that not only existed in British North America, but that drove a substantial part of its politics. Yet they also perceived that the, the enthusiasm for liberty displayed by their fellow colonists might create the space necessary for both individuals and religious bodies to flourish. Their optimism was borne out in John Carroll's view and the revolution created a country so blessed with civil and religious liberty, which if we have the wisdom and temper to preserve may come to exhibit to the world that general and equal toleration by giving a free circulation to fair argument is the most effectual method to bring all denominations of Christians to a unity of faith. Exactly a hundred years later, the American bishops gathered at the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore confirmed that optimism in their well-known declaration that in the establishment of our country's independence, the shaping of its liberties and laws, the nation's founders built better than they knew. The experience of French alliance and of Catholic patriotism during the Revolution, combined with the extension of the idea of religious liberty as it was eventually codified in the First Amendment, served to modify the jaundiced colonial view of Roman Catholics. No longer was Catholicism <coughs> uniquely threatening to freedom. It was now, with Protestant Christianity, a welcome cooperator, if not complete equal, in the American project. Thus began the period that historian David O'Brien calls Republican Catholicism, when shared ethnicity, customs, and political orientation led to relations between Protestants and Catholics that were by and large amicable. And this was the situation that Tocqueville observed in the 1830s. He might have gotten a different view had he come in the 1850s or the 1920s. For shortly after Tocqueville's visit, heavy Catholic immigration from Europe, Ireland in particular, began weakening the modus vivendi between Protestants and Catholics that had characterized the Republican era. The rise of know-nothingism in the 1850s reflected a resurgence of the pre-revolutionary view that Catholicism represented a threat to American freedom. 
The prominent Unitarian minister Theodore Parker stated the matter neatly in an 1854 sermon. The Catholic Church opposes everything which favors democracy and the natural rights of man. It hates our free churches, free press, and above all, our free schools. The quotation evokes the slogan of Republican ideology in the antebellum period, free soil, free labor, free men. As these free mantras indicate, there were many dimensions of the antipathy toward Catholicism exhibited by figures such as Parker. Parker was, for instance, an activist in the anti-slavery cause, and he saw the church as one of the enemies of abolitionism. Now, the picture of religion and American slavery is a muddy one all the way around. During the long national debate leading up to 1861, Christianity was seen to be on both sides of the issue. For some, not least black slaves themselves, the gospel message was one of liberation. For others, in particular Southern apologists, the Bible affirmed the basic justice of slavery. Indeed, one dimension of the terrible national strife over the institution of slavery was a battle about whether Christianity was a force for liberty or a force for oppression. It took several decades, but the verdict eventually emerged clearly. By the late 19th century, one would be hard-pressed to find a Christian who believed that his religion was compatible with human enslavement. At the time, most Catholic bishops in both the North and the South were quiet on the subject. Unqualified public declarations either for or against slavery were rare. That Catholics failed to show up conspicuously in the abolitionist movement confirmed the suspicions of Parker and other establishment figures, such as the New York Times editor who wrote at the outset of the Civil War, like popery, slavery is incompatible with the spirit of the age, or in other words, with liberty and civilization. The prominent abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison described Irish Catholics as a mighty obstacle in the way of Negro emancipation. Now, politics obviously played a major role in, that, in the identification of Catholics with the slave power. The Whigs were the party of abolitionism, and the Democratic Party, the defender of states' rights in the South, relied on Catholic support in the North. Be that as it may, the perception of a church tainted by slavery persisted after the war. The poet John Greenleaf Whittier wrote of the hostility of leading influences in the Catholic Church to republicanism and religious and political liberty. As an abolitionist, I have seen the bishops and priests oppose the abolition of slavery. The situation wasn't helped by developments in Rome, where Pope Pius IX was less concerned about American anti-Catholicism than he was with European liberalism. The 1864 syllabus of errors requires some parsing to appreciate from an objective vantage point 150 years later. Injected into American debates by partisans in the 1860s, the potential for mischief was great. An editorial in one influential magazine put it bluntly, the comprehensive lesson to be gleaned from publication of the syllabus was that Romanism is incompatible with Republican institutions. Like slavery, it is a hostile element lodged within the nation gnawing and burning it like a caustic. Charles Eliot Norton, a leading New England intellectual, was in Rome during the deliberations of the First Vatican Council. He wrote that the world had become divided between the principle of authority and that of freedom in matters of opinion, between faith and skepticism, between supernaturalism and science, between obscurantism and intelligence. Pius IX was leading the forces of reaction against its two most deadly enemies, scientific intelligence, and political freedom. Impelled by this mentality, the post-war period was a golden age for state-level Blaine amendments which prohibited public funds to so-called sectarian schools, a terminology that 
Justice Clarence Thomas rightly condemned in his Mitchell v. Helms opinion as born of bigotry. Against this view, Catholic intellectuals did not disavow freedom, but rather argued that its relation to authority needed to be understood correctly. There can be no ground, the celebrated convert Orestes Bronson wrote, for the feeling so commonly entertained by non-Catholics that the teachings and definitions of the church must needs operate as restraints on moral freedom and bring the Catholic into degrading intellectual bondage. They can restrain my intellectual freedom only in the sense that all truth possessed restrains it. In the final decade of the 19th century, respectable opinion withdrew from the baldly anti-Catholic rhetoric of earlier decades. This is not to say that Catholicism and freedom were suddenly perceived to march hand in hand. Hostility toward Catholics could still be found. The American Protective Association, founded in 1887 in Iowa, had as its goal the checking of Catholic political power. Besides pledging never to vote for a Catholic, its members swore, swore a secret oath to use my utmost power to strike the shackles and chains of blind obedience to the Roman Catholic Church from the hampered and bound consciences of a priest-ridden and church-oppressed people. The APA was short-lived, but it achieved significant political success in a variety of states in the early 1890s. It enjoyed little favor in elite circles, however, including the national press. The opinion of influential progressives, such as Washington Gladden, Richard Eli, were turning in favor of the church, and in particular its chief spokesman, Leo XIII, as they perceived him to be repositioning the church on matters of freedom and progress. The issuing of Rerum Novarum in 1891 was an important, uh, <clears throat> an important event in this perceived repositioning. The apostolic delegate to the United States, Archbishop Francesco Satoli, seemed to confirm the Vatican's stamp of approval on the American project when he urged attendees at a Chicago conference to go forward in one hand bearing the book of Christian truth and in the other the Constitution of the United States. The elite toleration of Catholics clashed loudly with popular opinion in the 1920s. The resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, the rise of Protestant fundamentalism with its attendant anti-Catholicism, the passage of a law in Oregon that would effectively prohibit parochial education, and the outbreak of explicit anti-Catholic rhetoric in reaction to Al Smith's candidacy for president were a few of the more obvious manifestations of the old antipathy to full Catholic participation in American society. Even among the elite, the truce with Catholicism was an e uneasy one. Although during the Smith campaign, most public intellectuals remained quiet or even defended the Catholic candidate against his detractors, a New York attorney, Charles Marshall, raised uncomfortable questions in a widely distributed article in the Atlantic Monthly. Citing Pius IX's Syllabus of Errors and Leo XIII's Immortale Dei, that's his encyclical on church and state, Marshall concluded that the Constitution declared that the U.S. government would hold in equal favor all religions and no religions while the popes have declared that the Catholic Church must be favored by the state. Is there not here a quandary, he asked, for that man who is at once a loyal churchman and a loyal citizen? It was a serious question and demanded a serious response. Al Smith provided it. Now his first stratagem was to plead ignorance of the finer points of theology, and that was a claim that was no doubt true. In fact, the legend is that uh, when he was first confronted with this argument, he said, What's this with encyclicals and bulls? I've never heard of them. And it's 
probably the case. He was just an Irish Catholic, you know, growing up in New York. He didn't know what uh, Leo XIII had written. How many Catholic politi politicians today could speak with any knowledge about Immortale Dei or the Second Vatican Council, uh, for that matter? Uh, one recalls here a Catholic candidate for president in 2004 who, trying to justify his pro-abortion position, cited the teaching of Pope Pius XXIII. <coughs> if you're looking for support for a pro-abortion position, I guess Pius XXIII would be the one to turn to. <laughs> Al Smith didn't leave it at that, however. He consulted a Catholic authority who was presumably beyond patriotic reproach, Father Francis Duffy, one-time chaplain of the famous New York Regiment, the Fighting 69th, and recipient of the Distinguished Service Cross. Duffy supplied Smith with reasonable explanations of several of Marshall's purported tensions between American government and the Catholic faith. For the more strident or difficult papal statements, Smith cited in response American authorities such as John Ryan, Archbishop Ireland, and Cardinal Gibbons, again names that have surfaced, to the effect that these claims had no practical application in the United States. The Gibbons statement is apropos. So this is Cardinal James Gibbon. He was the Archbishop of Baltimore for many years, I think about 40 years in the late 19th, early 20th century. <clears throat> Widely recognized as a leading figure in the hierarchy at the time. Gibbons wrote, and Smith used this quotation in his article of response, American Catholics rejoice in our separation of church and state, and I can conceive no combination of circumstances likely to arise which would make a union desirable to either church or state. For ourselves, we thank God that we live in America, and here Gibbons quoted Theodore Roosevelt, in this happy country of ours where religion and liberty are natural allies. Smith concluded by articulating his American Catholic creed, wherein he professed belief in the worship of God according to the faith and practice of the Roman Catholic Church, but also absolute freedom of conscience for all men and absolute separation of church and state. Smith lost the election, of course, but that did not shake the faith of the large majority of Catholics who believed in the consonance of things American and things Catholic. Catholic World Editor James Gillis, that was a Paulist publication, Gillis was a Paulist, spoke for many when he wrote that in opposition to their fellow citizens who thought a man could not be president on account of his religious affiliation alone, Catholics find ourselves more in harmony with true Americanism than they are who deny us the right to be Americans. Arguably, the political fireworks set off by the first Catholic candidate for president were a distraction from more important developments taking place in the 1920s in the deeper stratum of culture, developments that continue to play out in the contemporary controversies. This tectonic shift is too complex to detail here, but its basic thrust is indisputable. American views on freedom began to change. Concern with political freedom, a focus on rights such as voting and voluntary association, faded, while concern with cultural freedom, we might call it, such as the right to purchase contraception or obtain a divorce, came to the fore. Within this context, in 1931, Pope Pius XI published Quadrages Moano, his response to the global economic crisis that was then in full swing. Solidifying the change begun in the 1890s, non-Catholic American liberals saw the Pope as an ally on economic policy questions. Catholic liberals, in turn, saw in Quadrages Mo affirmation of their attempt to reconcile progressive politics and Catholic identity. But there was a problem. 
Liberal American intellectuals were happy to trumpet the economic teaching of Pius because it seemed to comport with their political views. But on other questions of social morality, the church's teaching was not as congenial. A year before Pius released Quadragesimo, he published Costi Canubi, which upheld traditional Christian teaching on sexual morality and marriage. Campaigns during this era to expand sex education in schools, to end censorship of books and films, and to open access to birth control found little support within the American Catholic community, American Catholic liberals included. Monsignor John Ryan embodied this tension. As vocal a proponent of Franklin Roosevelt as could be found in 1930s Catholic America, he supported New Deal reforms that favored labor unions, regulated prices and wages, provided old age and unemployment insurance. Yet he was also the most active adversary of Margaret Sanger's Birth Control League. And his stint on the board of the American Civil Liberties Union came to an abrupt end when it became clear that the brand of liberty championed by the ACLU was incompatible with the one that Ryan held. <clears throat> For her part, Sanger was quick to employ the language of freedom and to invoke historical American worries about Roman influence in her effort to eliminate legal restrictions on contraception. You must make a declaration of independence, of self-reliance, she exhorted readers of the Birth Control Review, or submit to the dictatorship of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Sanger deliberately attempted to identify the anti-birth control position with Catholicism. She gained early publicity, in fact, when uh, rumors spread that the dispersal of her first rally in New York uh, by the NYPD occurred by direct order of the Archbishop Patrick Hayes. This early turn to issues of cultural freedom was incomplete, and its full impact would be suppressed by various factors through the 1950s. That the conventional political fears might be combined, however, with the new cultural radicalism to spectacular effect was demonstrated in 1949, when a Boston-based Unitarian press released Paul Blanchard's American Freedom and Catholic Power. The book is sometimes dismissed as a relic of a bygone era of anti-Catholicism, but it's important to recall how widely acclaimed it was at the time and how persistent is its theme of conflict between liberty and Catholicism. The book began with an explanation of church structure, a treatment of the church's embarrassing, as Blanchard saw it, embarrassing historical relationship with democracy and a chapter on schools. To this point, Blanchard offered nothing beyond what George Marshall and other previous critics had. But there followed chapters on medicine, birth control, and divorce, combined with explorations of science, fascism, and ominously, the church's plan for America. The overall picture was clear. Roman Catholicism was the enemy of freedom and progress. So it had always been, and so it remained. Praise for the book rolled in from liberal luminaries such as John Dewey, Albert Einstein, Bertrand Russell, and others. This friendly reception to some Catholics was the most disturbing feature of the Blanchard phenomenon. In the preface to a book-length response, Brooklyn College professor James O'Neill explained that he decided to take Blanchard's otherwise forgettable book so seriously because it had been praised and promoted by men who, on account of the positions they occupy and the ideals they advocate, should have been expected to expose its anti-religious, anti-Catholic bias, its basic freedom-smothering philosophy of the omnicompetent state, and its erroneous scholarship. This failure, O'Neill complained, has done more to produce what has been called the tension between Catholic and non-Catholic Americans than all of Mr. Blanchard's inaccuracies 
and insults put together. At the same time, some Catholics conceded that the critiques voiced by the Charles Marshalls and the Paul Blanchards were not entirely without foundation. In the pages of a Jesuit journal, Thought, Walter Ong, who's a Jesuit, granted Blanchard some credit for uncovering a real inconsistency in the American church between her way of acting and her habitual way of thinking about the issues around her. The old Catholic answer on church and state was never quite satisfactory, either to non-Catholics or to Catholics. That answer, furnished in typical fashion by John Ryan's 1922 textbook, explained that church-state union, or at least a favoring of the church by the state, was the ideal, or as it was sometimes called in the terminology of the time, the thesis. Yet in circumstances that warranted it, such as in pluralist America, Catholics might accept a temporary practical compromise, hypothesis. It was this dissatisfaction that provoked John Courtney Murray to begin studying the issue in the 1940s. Observing the remarkable rise of Catholicism in America, he was increasingly skeptical that vigorous protection of religious liberty for all was an inferior arrangement. Are we to suppose, he wrote in a private letter, that 30 million Catholics must be perpetually in a state of hypothesis? The efforts of Murray and others bore fruit in the Declaration on Religious Liberty, which satisfied many Americans, Catholics included, that the church was indeed a friend of religious freedom for all. But by that time, the currents of liberal opinion had moved beyond Murray's primary concern. The absence of compulsion in religious and political affairs was no longer an adequate description of freedom. Increasingly, devotion to democracy and toleration was the hallmark of American identity. The Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences stated that a religious institution claiming universal validity and essential changelessness for its doctrine of salvation is necessarily intolerant. On this view, only a religion that was experimental, scientific, rational, and these qualities implied non-dogmatic, mutable, and empirical could be compatible with American democracy and freedom. Now, as in every period, the picture was complicated. Significant elements within the church became valuable allies in the civil rights movement, and thus Catholicism's portrayal as a force of reaction was less plausible. Even more significant, American Catholicism distinguished itself as a stalwart opponent of communism in both the United States and abroad. Insofar as liberals understood the pivotal battle of the era to be between freedom on one side and communist totalitarianism on the other, it was impossible not to view the church as an ally rather than an enemy. The prominent pragmatist philosopher Sidney Hook tried to persuade one skeptical correspondent that today the most urgent threat to your freedom and mine and the freedom of all mankind comes from the Kremlin, not the Vatican. In some circles, the church would continue to be seen as a defender of human rights and political and religious freedom. There is, for example, the largely positive assessment of the role of the church and of John Paul II in particular in undermining communism in Eastern Europe. But as the most contentious domestic disputes increasingly became cultural, or what we often call the social issues, about the social issues, the church was once again relegated to the wrong side of history. As already suggested, the foundation for the shift to cultural issues was laid in the 1920s by avant-garde crusades to liberalize marriage laws and mores. By the 1940s, these forces were no longer marginal. 
Most Protestant church bodies had ceased to condemn the practice of contraception, for example. Some, in fact, had earnestly embraced it. The defeat of the repeal of Comstock-era birth control laws in Massachusetts in the 1940s were great victories for the church, a church that was ironically trying to hold the line on laws that had been enacted on the initiative of Protestant activists in the late 19th century. But in retrospect, this was clearly a rearguard action in a long retreat, not the opening skirmish of a sweeping advance. From the 1960s forward, these cultural issues splashed onto the scene, one after another, in a series of causes, events, and debates that in each case pitted the Catholic position against individual liberty and progress. Birth control, abortion, in vitro fertilization, assisted suicide, gay marriage. The degree of Catholic isolation on these matters differed according to time, place, and issue. And without question, the cooperation of Catholics with non-Catholic Christians and others of faith in proclaiming a gospel of life in the face of a culture of death, to use John Paul's terminology, was one of the most striking and salutary developments of the late 20th century. And it's not my intention to diminish in the least the tremendous contributions of countless non-Catholics. But it is worth remembering that in response to the Supreme Court decisions on abortion in 1973, the vast majority of Protestant churches, including evangelicals, adopted attitudes ranging from enthusiastic endorsement to studied silence. These churches often viewed the issue exactly as pro-abortion advocates did, as a matter of personal liberty, and accepted the depiction of Catholicism as trying to exert undue control over the private lives of individual Americans. It's certainly a heartening sign that in the current struggle, influential non-Catholics have more quickly and forcefully rejected the tactic of isolating Catholic opposition. In these cases, the view that Catholics tend to be the enemies of freedom has been decisively renounced. The serious danger to liberty, these allies believe, and correctly, we, we believe, comes from other quarters. Thus, the widely remarked realignment of American politics and culture that finds conservative Catholics and Protestants and other advocates of traditional morality on one side and liberal Catholics, Protestants, and others on the other can be mapped onto the changing perception of religion and liberty. For those on the libertine side of the culture war, Catholics per se are no longer considered unfit for positions of public authority, but certain types of Catholics certainly are. And what is the objection? Precisely the old one, the threat to liberty. In the past, those skeptical of Catholicism's place in American life pilloried Catholic insistence on a confessional state, or Catholic support for slavery, or Catholic fondness for monarchy. In each case, Catholic assurance is that there was no danger of an American inquisition against Protestants, or that the church too believed in the dignity of black people, or that Catholicism and democracy were compatible were confirmed by history. American bishops never pushed for a confessional state, and teachings from Rome became ever more clearly anti-slavery and pro-democracy. The experience of American Catholics and doctrinal developments worked in tandem to assuage the fears of liberty-loving, non-Catholic Americans. But what happens when freedom, as Americans understand it, and Catholic doctrine really do come into conflict? What happens when freedom is defined as the capacity to kill the unborn or to form same-sex marital unions or to, st to tap state funds for practices that are contrary to Catholic morality? 
Catholics cannot, as they have in the past, assure fellow Americans that in actuality we believe the same things and there's nothing to worry about. It's a shift identified recently by Father James Shaw. Much of the controversy today, he writes, is not precisely about religious freedom, but is instead over matters of fact and truth. Abortion, homosexuality, genetic experimentation, and euthanasia are not primarily religious issues, but rational ones. On these life issues, not a few religions have come to embrace what are in effect irrational rights that contradict reason. Therefore, religious freedom is really at bottom a philosophical and political issue because it pertains to what a reasonable politics can rightly allow. Or to put it in John Courtney Murray-esque terms, perhaps we no longer hold enough truths in common to sustain the American experiment in peaceful pluralism. I think that was in essence the argument of, of Dr. Grasso's talk earlier this weekend. The result is grave danger to the integrity of religious freedom itself. A clear expression of this came courtesy of Kai Feldblum, now a member of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, who stated in a 2006 interview that in the event of conflict between religious liberty and sexual liberty, in almost all cases, the sexual liberty should win. And when she was pressed on this in the interview, she followed up by saying she couldn't think of a case where religious liberty should trump sexual liberty. The topic was gay rights, but the sentiment might be and has been extended to other issues. The evidence supports Thomas Farr's contention that for many Americans, the status of religious freedom has been downgraded. No longer is it the first freedom, it is at risk of becoming the fifth freedom, or the tenth freedom, or just special pleading by religious people. The state of affairs had, has led at least one astute commentator to declare that, with respect to Catholic social ministries and institutions, the threat of institutional martyrdom is at hand. That was Professor Jerry Bradley, <coughs> the optimist, as, he's recently, <laughs> as he recently discovered. So the task ahead of us is a difficult one. And it's different from the earlier attempt to prove that Catholicism can play well with others in a pluralistic and democratic society. It is to reinvigorate an older notion of freedom that if not the fullness of Catholic freedom at least did not threaten the existence of the church as an American institution. It's the freedom of the Declaration and the First Amendment, a freedom which looks to God as the source of rights and therefore views religious liberty as fundamental to human flourishing. How do we get there? Well, the short and very honest answer is, I don't know. But that's never a very satisfactory thing for a speaker to say. So I do have a suggestion. We need to create or recreate for fellow Americans a positive image of Christianity and of Catholicism more specifically, in particular with respect to its relation to freedom. That's a vague aim to be sure, but it's nonetheless a significant and meaningful one. We need, in other words, to create the impression that in America, once again, Catholicism and liberty march in the same direction. This kind of impression, or sentiment, or sensibility, if you prefer, is created by the construction and dissemination of narratives. That is to say, we need to tell the story of religion and liberty, and to do so in such a way that the Catholic Church emerges as a hero rather than a villain. Now, this does not mean 
that we violate the truth in any way or suppress the facts about what actually happened in the past. To compromise the truth in the cause of promoting freedom grounded in truth would be contradictory and hypocritical in the, in the extreme, and I don't think I should be proposing that at the inaugural event of a place called the Veritas Center. <clears throat> but every reconstruction of the past involves decisions about where stress will be laid, about which figures and events are exemplary and which are idiosyncratic. Certainly instances of oppression, of opposition to human flourishing by Catholic individuals and institutions can be found. The question is whether those cases are central or tangential to the main storyline. A balanced narrative need not ignore the dark side of the history of the Catholic people, but it ought not to fail to display the ways in which the church has been a beacon of light in a troubled world. Just to give you one concrete example that comes to my mind, a documentary that my institution, the Acton Institute, produced a few years ago called The Birth of Freedom. In the film, sociologist Rodney Stark talks about the gradual eradication of slavery in Europe before its resurgence in the 16th century. And he says in this documentary, he says, Christian Europe got rid of slavery. That's a story about slavery that's very seldom told, and it's a shame. We need to tell that story and others. The role of the church throughout history as a counterbalance to the metastasizing power of the state. The development of the notion of human rights by medieval theologians. The insistence of churchmen on the rights and dignity of natives in conquered land, lands during the age of exploration. The heroic stands for freedom taken by countless clergy and lay people under totalitarian regimes in the 20th century. None of these stories has, of course, been completely neglected. Probably many of you know many of them. But have they saturated the intellectual and popular culture to the point where the mutually reinforcing character of Catholicism and freedom would be considered received wisdom? Obviously, they haven't. This approach, I think, can be extended to cultural issues. Abortion, for example, might be argued against quite legitimately on the ground that it is murder, the deliberate taking of an innocent person's life. But it may also be condemned as a reversal of moral progress in the American context. This was what led Father Richard John Newhouse to declare the possibility of a Catholic moment in 1987. The church's stalwart opposition to abortion was not an aberration from the American tradition. It was instead a brilliant manifestation of the American determination to include hitherto marginalized groups within the civil community wherein protection of fundamental human rights is guaranteed. The pro-life movement was for Newhouse the natural successor, successor of the civil rights movement. Newhouse's approach, therefore, was not to emphasize the distinctiveness of the Catholic moral position, but to attach it to venerable American themes of freedom, rights, and toleration. This approach has the benefit of presenting the church to an often skeptical, sometimes hostile world as an attractive partner in the quest for human fulfillment rather than as a source of limitation or condemnation. It heeds the call of Pope Francis to adopt a missionary style whose message concentrates on what is most beautiful, most grand, most appealing. It would be, this is one way to think about it, would be within the field of history, attending to what Francis called in that same document, Evangelii Gaudium, the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty. Now, to be clear, I do not mean to discourage or even to criticize existing efforts to defend religious freedom. They're all necessary and they're all useful. 
I mean only to encourage a particular approach that I view as promising, yet relatively neglected. The effort will need to proceed along several fronts, as it ever has, in academic institutions, in primary and secondary education, and perhaps most especially in the media and popular culture. Yet the message may be essentially unified. The Catholic Church is a champion of freedom, and the freedom Catholics promote is a boon to the welfare, dignity, and fulfillment of all human persons. When that narrative is accepted by Americans, Catholic and non-Catholic alike, then the thorny problems of Catholicism and religious and political freedom will not so much be resolved, I don't think they will be resolved completely this side of the kingdom, but they'll lose much of their practical force. And to accomplish that would be enough and a no small achievement. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.